So we turn the calendar to a new month, which means that we are now just, oops, there we go, more than, uh, just a little more than a year away from the next presidential election. And I'm suspecting that most of you have heard uh, already, it, it, there's a lot of talk going on about how it might go, and there are several swing states that could decide this one, and, uh, and Wisconsin's one of those, which automatically means that we are going to be inundated with more political ads and commercials than we are normally. Now, I don't know about you, but I, I just, I finally get sick and tired of them, and I've already started seeing political ads and campaigns on TV. So I can only guess what we have coming down the line, especially as we get into November and then in 2024. So just a heads up, you might want to just uh, DVR everything and skip all the commercials. Wouldn't it be nice if this time around, if all of the political advertising was absolutely 100% honest and true. I know we have to decipher what we hear and discern what's right and what might be stretching the truth, but wouldn't it be neat if this time it went something like this? Thanks for coming, everyone. Who's ready for some buzzwords we workshopped in a focus group? Why did you visit a hospital this morning? Photo opportunities, mostly, but um, I think there was some sort of policy announcement as well. Can you give us any more information? Certainly. What I like to do is roll my sleeves up to make it look like I'm a harder worker. Props are great as well. A picture in a hard hat can get you out of any political mess. Yeah, no, I meant about the policy announcement. I think it was about some funding that we'll probably never follow through on. What are your thoughts on the school funding scandal? This is the first I'm hearing of it, so just put me down for the opposite of what my opponent says. What about this morning's polls? Now, you know those polls aren't accurate. They have you up by 3%. Like I was saying, polls are the most accurate way of representing the community. Are you afraid of the negative effects of your public workforce plan? Let me say this. I am deeply, deeply concerned about getting votes. If I am doing anything that may lead to not getting votes, let me know, and I'm happy to change. You know, if commercials were like that, I would watch every single one of them, because they're hilarious, especially when the truth comes out. And I recognize that's a big ask. But an even bigger ask is when we have those moments of reflection, especially when we face the turning points in our lives, that is those moments where we have to make a decision and we find that maybe more challenging than political honesty might be honesty with ourselves. The truth of the matter is it takes a lot of courage to admit certain things. It takes a lot of courage to actually be honest, to recognize that there are certain things in our life, especially in our spiritual lives, that we need to address that we need to roll up our sleeves, if you will, and actually put in some work so that we can take advantage of the blessings that God gives us, not only for the next life, but for the one right now. That's the angle upon which we're going to take a look at Nicodemus this morning, one of the main characters in today's lesson. We turn to John 3. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. How can a man rob, how can a man be born again, be born when he is old? Nicodemus asked, surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. 
So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. Now, I know we're stopping through about halfway through this lesson. Jesus goes on to speak more to Nicodemus. But this portion really makes the point about us being courageous enough to be honest with ourselves in our own lives. And the way we get there is by understanding this as the context lesson, our gospel lesson, because it provides some very important details which brings clarity and understanding to what I just read for you. Two main items. One is John uses this phrase, the Jews. Their Jews came and confronted Jesus about this cleansing of the temple. And then why didn't this group understand the sign that Jesus is offering to them? Destroy this temple. And of course, the key word is temple. He wasn't talking about the building. As John goes on to explain, he was talking about his own body. And even after the fact, when the disciples recognized how this all fit together, why didn't these people, and getting to know these people will be much more beneficial to see that they should have. All right, first let's start with that uh, first detail, the Jews. John himself gives us some clarity on his use of that phrase. If we back up to chapter 1, when John the Baptist appears on the scene and begins his ministry, John says the Jews sent out delegates. Well, some of the delegates were priests and Levites. So it isn't just the general population. They had no authority over those office holders. There was a specific group which ultimately would have done something like that. Uh, John refers to him as the Jewish ruling council. You may be more familiar with the terminology, the word Sanhedrin. And quite honestly, they were the legislative body in the nation of Israel. Now, of course, the Roman government, uh, who had conquered the, the Jewish people, had uh, oversight over everything. But they did allow the Sanhedrin a certain amount of, of authority and power, and that was to make the the day-to-day -day decisions amongst the people. They took that authority and power and extended it so far as to make themselves kind of the gatekeepers uh, for the religious life, the spiritual life of the people in Israel. I think it is vital, and, and I know we've had uh, some lessons where we've touched on some of these things, but I can't recall a time where we've ever fully dissected how the Sanhedrin was structured. So it would be helpful for us, especially uh, trying to understand Nicodemus a little better in, in, in this midnight mission, if you will, of his, to see where he might have fallen into this structure. Uh, Sanhedrin consisted of 71 members. Uh, there were these three subgroups with 23 members each. Uh, the three subgroups were the Chamber of the Priests, and that consisted of the Sadducee sect of religion. There was the Chamber of the Scribes, which consisted of the Pharisees, and I've circled that because that would have been the group from which Nicodemus uh, hailed from because John tells us he was a Pharisee. And then there was a third group known as the Chamber of the Elders, and that could have been made up of, of either of those two. And there were other, even though we don't often hear about them, there were other groups who could have been in there, the Herodians, uh, the Essenes, and then maybe some residual Sadducees and Pharisees. These three chambers, it was uh, commonly recognized as the Sanhedrin. If you look at the passage from Mark, that's exactly how he refers to them. Uh, and that's a reference to the second cleaning of the temple. Uh, at the end of Jesus' ministry, he talks about the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders. And that gives us helpful information. Uh, the scribes were actually also... To be a member of that group, you had to be a rabbi, and not just any rabbi. You had to be a well-known and a well-respected rabbi. And since I told you that's the group from which Nicodemus hailed from, you know that he was a well-known and well-respected rabbi, not only in the city of Jerusalem, but in the land of Judea. 
Okay, those three groups give us 69 members, so that means we need two more. And there were uh, these two position, uh, positions, the Nazi or the president, and a lot of people assume that was the high priest, and it could have been, but not necessarily. Uh, and then there was uh, this vice chancellor, what is known as the master of the court. In my own mind, in researching this, I would have think the high priest might have better fit into that category, uh, or maybe as the vice president, the overseer of the group of the priests. Now, I wanted you to have this background because it, it plays into something that our lesson actually shows us, but I think a lot of times is overlooked. If you go to that opening verse, uh, you will see that it fails to translate something for us. It simply introduces us to Nicodemus as one of the Pharisees, a member of the Jewish ruling council. But the original language actually describes him as being archon. And you know this word in our own language. It, it's where we get the word arch or arc, like an arc angel, meaning one of the highest ranking angels, or arch enemy, one of your worst or most fierce enemies. So Nicodemus wasn't just an ordinary member of the Sanhedrin, he held a high position. I think it would be a stretch to put him in the office of the Nasi or the president, but I think it makes a lot more sense if at very least we might recognize that Nicodemus could have been the vice president over that subsection of the scribes of the Pharisees. Now you might think, well that's a lot of uh, great historical information, but, but what does it really mean? Well, it tells us a couple things. One is that it, it required a lot of courage for this Pharisee to go in and speak to Jesus in the first place. But if he's a high-ranking official of the Sanhedrin, that, that's a whole other level of courage. And we have to understand that in the framework of this was a very public event. Not just Jesus down in the courtyard clearing it out of the money changers and the animal sellers, but there is a proximity to where the Sanhedrin ordinarily met that brings us to a whole new level. The Sanhedrin would meet in this chamber known as the Chamber of the Hewn Stone. And I've given you this picture to show you where it is. It is not only right next to the courtyard, but it overlooks the courtyard. So even if they were in session as this loud and boisterous cleansing of the temple takes place, it would have been an easy enough thing for them to recess and actually just walk over to the window and look out and go, what's going on down there? And seeing this guy whipping to get rid of the money changers and the animal sellers and creating this great commotion. Now, I wanted you to understand the publicity of this event because then what takes place makes a little bit more sense and helps us to better understand this man, Nicodemus. We need to understand that probably the group that showed up first and foremost and raises the objections was the chamber of the priests, not the chamber of the scribes. The reason I say that is because the chamber of the priests used that activity down in the courtyard as one of their money-making streams. Because they were the priests, they ran the temple, all of the proceeds would have gone into the temple treasury, and don't overlook the fact that they were the ones in charge of it, which meant they controlled it and from time to time probably even took advantage of it. That means Nicodemus was probably not one of the Sanhedrin members who confronted Jesus and who got upset and angry that he was breaking down their revenue sources. But we certainly could recognize the fact that he was uh, 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 intimately aware of what had gone on that Jesus had very publicly introduced himself to the southern part of the kingdom with this as one of his most first public events. And news would have spread quickly throughout Jerusalem and Judea 
that there was this new rabbi on the sea. The point is, is that Nicodemus wouldn't have immediately interjected himself into this uh, relationship with Jesus. But he did hear what Jesus had to say about this sign, the sign that the rest of them didn't understand, and he struggled with too. Destroy this temple. Now rebuild it in three days. That left Nicodemus with a lot of questions. Now when we couple with that the fact that John shares with us in uh, some of the verses following the temple cleansing that Jesus remained in Jerusalem and he performed many miracles, which not only had an effect on the people, but seems to have had an effect on Nicodemus. And here's what I want you to understand. Is after the cleansing of the temple, those verses are included. The only miracle that has been uh, recorded in any detail to this point in the Gospels is Jesus is changing the water of, into wine. That happened up in Cana, in the northern region of Galilee. Uh, and it was a, a fairly private miracle because it was done in the context of the wedding. It's not until Jesus comes south, and we never hear exactly what these miracles are, but you could make some educated guesses based on the other miracles that we know Jesus performed. This had a huge impact on Nicodemus, that there was all of a sudden now a new rabbi in town who not only spoke in ways that no other rabbi had, but he was able to perform miraculous acts that no other rabbi could do. That becomes the setting upon which now Nicodemus goes to Jesus at night and asks these questions. And it isn't really translated in the form of the question, but we know that he's searching for something because the response that Jesus gives starts out, he's actually answering something that Nicodemus had asked. If not verbally, at least his body language and the way he was phrasing these things, Jesus immediately recognized, here's a man in front of me who is searching for answers. That shows us courage on two levels. One, he was putting his career at risk as a member of the Sanhedrin, a member of the Pharisees, to show any kind of respect to Jesus or, if you will, to actually entertain that this man might have something worthy of study, would have put him on the outside looking in with his fellow rabbis, but then also great courage to admit something about himself. Nicodemus comes across as a, a rabbi who really cared about his role. And one of the main roles of the rabbi was to study and digest the truth of God's word. The secondary role of a rabbi was then to dispense the knowledge that he had gained to his disciples. And then it was his disciples who were to go out amongst the general population and share the things that were learned. Nicodemus is recognizing that there is something that he has missed in his study of God's word and trying to get his head around his relationship with God that he needs to get answers for, and he goes to the only place that he recognizes he can now find them. And that's why the lesson is about not only being honest with ourselves, but the recognition that that requires a great level of courage to do so. I don't know about you, but a lot of times it's a very uncomfortable feeling for me to have to say, I don't know. And over the years, I've kind of learned that's a better way to go. I can take the time to look into it, especially teaching God's Word. That's usually one of the first lessons I would teach any of the student pastors, the vicars that we've had. Say, you know what, don't ever be afraid to say, I don't know. Uh, and let the folks know that you'll go back, you'll study it, you'll research it, and you'll try to find the best possible answer that God's Word offers to us. Because God doesn't give us permission to just make stuff up or, if you will, to take what he says and twist it into something that makes sense 
to the human mind because so much of it is beyond our understanding. Think of the courage of a man who was so well respected amongst his peers, probably looked up to by the people, and he comes to this newcomer and says, you know what, there's stuff here you're talking about I don't get. In fact, some of the verses following our, our lesson, Jesus acknowledges that. You're a teacher, and you don't understand these things. He says, then how, how can you possibly share this with others who desperately need to learn this lesson? Now, this is Nicodemus's turning point. But if you stop to think about it, if you're honest with yourself, this is our turning point too. Our lives in many ways are very much parallel to that of Nicodemus. Um, I would suggest that most of us, if not all of us, are, are very religious people. You're here in church on a Sunday morning and the weather is beautiful. I'm sure you could have thought of a hundred other things to do, but you want to be here uh, around God's word and, and worshiping our creator and our redeemer. I would suspect that most of you are, are well respected. Not, not only amongst your peers, but, but he, there are probably people who look up to you uh, and, and maybe even seek some of your wisdom and knowledge, the life experience that you have. This man was well provided for. As a member of the Sanhedrin, he probably lacked for nothing because they tended to be on the more well-to-do side, and yet he, he felt, he sensed there was still something not quite right. And, and that's the part that I'd really like us to get to. This man was honest enough to admit he didn't know everything there was uh, to be about God or God's plan of salvation or God's plan of salvation as applied to our day-to-day lives here. And he was willing to actually go and ask somebody the questions, the important questions, to find out the answers. And so this is also our turning point. Are we honest with ourselves when it comes to these very same things? Let me start this way. Are we religious or are we spiritual? Let me put it this way. Is faith just something that we do? Or is it really who we are? Do we put into practice the truths that God has shared with us to the point that we not only show our appreciation that he has changed us for eternity, but that he's also changed us for right now? On our day-to-day journey through this life, Jesus has done things which forever make this life different. He told Nicodemus he came to give us our lives back. He uses the phrase born again, and and I tend to shy away from that because it's so terribly misunderstood, and and we'll dig into it more. Because oftentimes people think being born again is some commitment they make towards God, when in fact nobody chooses to be born. It's a decision that is made for them. And in the same way, we're physically brought into this world by somebody else's choice, so we're also spiritually made new alive by God's doing and choice. And that's an important uh, lesson for us to remember because God has made that commitment to us. And so it is right and good for us to ask, have we made the same kind of commitment to God? Again, let me ask, is faith just something that we do, that we practice, or is it truly who we are? They, maybe the best way to answer that is take a look at our day-to-day lives. Of course we trust God that we're on our way to heaven. But consider, has this Messiah, this promised one of God, changed not just where we're going, but who we are? And if he hasn't, then we have to be honest enough to go, we're settling for something less than the love of God. I woke up this morning with a normal feeling for me. 
It felt like sadness, but more like hunger than anything else. The closest word for it is empty. Whatever the feeling was, I wanted it to go away. Within an hour of waking up, this feeling's usually gone. Coffee can do it, catching up on sports, and by the time I check my email, I'm good. At least I'm full for the present. The feeling, whatever it was, is gone. But quite easily, I slip back into the emptiness. If not the next hour, the next day. Technology gives me the quickest, most instantly gratifying fill. That's why I like social media. All I really need is one like on Instagram, and I'm golden. Facebook can do it too, as long as it's about me. And I look on Twitter to get my sarcasm fill for the day. It doesn't really take much, but it doesn't really last long either. If social media doesn't do it, music always fills me up, especially when I'm driving. I got my tunes, the open road, and I can listen to whatever I want. I rock the same songs over and over again. I was empty. Now I'm filled. I have millions of ways to fill up. I didn't even mention TV, movies, or beach vacations, alcohol, cars, home improvements, accolades at work. Whatever I want, I can have it. With the touch of a button or the drop of a hat, the world is at my fingertips. I can fill myself with whatever I want, cash pending. All I have to do is convince myself that it's good to eat and desirable for food. Then it's just a matter of plucking my choice fruit from the tree. No wonder I don't need God to be filled. I'm already full. Often does it happen that there are things in our lives that we allow things in our lives that not only compete with Jesus, but might even replace him. See, that was the dilemma that Nicodemus now faced. This man shows up and it calls to his attention a loneliness, an emptiness. Something was missing and he quickly recognized it. Here he had been teaching God's word for who knows how long. And he still hadn't gotten down to the truth of what life is really about. It's not just getting ahead. It's getting back into the family of God or getting our lives back. See, Nicodemus didn't get that, so Jesus works overtime to explain it to him, and he does it in a way, using an illustration which Nicodemus would have understood. We have to unravel a little bit because given the thousands of years that have passed by, this has lost some of its meaning, and I think, unfortunately, we don't see all the beauty and love of our Savior in how he speaks to Nicodemus. This concept of being born again, he uses a second way to describe it, born of water and the Spirit. And I know what most of us have either uh, guessed that means or have been told that means, but I need to tell you, it's not the sacrament of baptism. It's not this. When we pull out the baptismal font, 
and apply the water in the name of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I know it sounds like that, but there are two very clear things which tell us that's not what Jesus is talking about. Now, don't misunderstand this. Eventually, the application leads us to baptism as one of the things where we find our spiritual rebirth, but that's not specifically what Jesus is talking about. The first reason we know it's not is because it wasn't even in existence yet. Jesus would not take baptism and make it a gift to the world, a sacrament, which literally changes the spiritual hearts of people until the end of his ministry. We're still three years away from this sacrament actually existing. And besides the time element, there's a grammatical thing that often gets overlooked. Jesus describes this in the terms of a conditional sentence. And I can go into all the grammar and details, which probably end up confusing you. So let me explain this just simple, uh, in simple terms. If A doesn't happen, then B cannot happen. That's the condition. Unless A, then B. So if you see this as a sacrament of baptism, what Jesus would be saying, unless you have received the sacrament of baptism, you cannot go to heaven and your life will never change. And we know for all of the Old Testament believers, that wasn't true. We know up until the time that Jesus gave us the sacrament of baptism, that wasn't true. And we even know right now, while baptism is one of the means whereby God brings us into his kingdom, it is not a requirement. We are not to despise baptism, but we don't make eternal salvation dependent upon it because God didn't make it dependent upon it. So then what is he talking about? Well, you need to understand that the custom of baptism was in existence before it ever became a sacrament. I know we've talked about this before, but it's good to review. Baptism actually originated amongst pagan religions. They used it as a ritual or a custom, as an outward sign uh, to show something about their practice. Well, as we're getting closer to the New Testament time, the Jewish priests observed this custom and they adopted it into Judaism, meaning that if somebody was going to convert from paganism, from a false religion, and then become a follower of somebody who believes in the coming Messiah, Judaism, oftentimes they would go through the custom of baptism. The process was, first they would go through examination. Do you really want to convert to this religion? Uh, secondly, if you were male, there was the Jewish ceremonial laws of, of circumcision. They would go through that. And then a week later, they would have this announcement of their conversion publicly made through the custom of baptism. Archaeologists have actually found uh, these baptismal baths, known as mikvahs, uh, in Jerusalem as they've unearthed certain areas. They were the public way of saying, this person who once was a, a pagan is now a child of Israel. It's known as a proselyte. In fact, Luke records that in the Pentecost event. It's the very word proselyte that we use, typically translated as a convert. There were both Jewish believers there and converts to the faith. Okay, that gets us halfway there. What, what is Jesus talking about? How would Nicodemus have had a real understanding of where Jesus is going with this illustration? Well, there was another, if you will, an adaptation and an adoption of the custom of baptism. Early in the ministry of John the Baptist, without God giving us the specific details, he had John actually take the Jewish custom of baptism and use it in much the same way. If somebody was converting from Judaism to Christianity, 
then they would oftentimes go through this ritual of baptism. We know that John himself refers to it that way. He says, I baptize with water. Notice he doesn't say, I baptize with water and the Spirit. He was going through this custom. And John tells us that the Pharisees were intimately familiar with John the Baptist and his use of baptism. And so when Jesus uses this illustration to explain new birth or being born again or being born of the Spirit and of water, they, he's acknowledging they have converted from the old faith to the new faith. And we know this was done by God because Jesus later on when he's challenged, he says, this baptism John was using, was this just a human thing? Was it just the pagan custom? Or has God used it in a beautiful and amazing way to show what it means to be born again? That you need to realize that Jesus Christ is the promised Messiah of God and trust that he has come to pay for every single one of our sins and close the doors to hell and open the doors to heaven and that that changes your life right here and right now. It's not someday you will be born again. You've been born again right now. All right, what we need to understand is, is that rebirth isn't something that humans do for God. And I know sometimes it's presented that way, as if somebody could somehow change from their unbelief and of their own accord, all of a sudden recognize, you know what, maybe this God thing makes sense, I think I'll start believing it. It doesn't work that way. Being born again has always been the fruit of the work of God, the Holy Spirit, where he takes our hearts that are dead in sin and brings them back to life through the gift of faith. That has always been accomplished through the power of God's word, what we call the gospel, the good news, that God has made a commitment to us to change us, to give us our lives back, to make us what he created us to be. And here's where the love of God continues to flow. Not only does he use the power of God's word, but now he has given us the sacrament of holy baptism. At the end of his ministry, he said, go, teach, use that powerful word, but then also baptize. Bring them into my family. Help people to understand what it means to be in a relationship with God. That isn't just getting through the day-to-day but God loves us so much that he not only changes our forever, he changes us right here and right now. I don't know if you've ever looked at the account of Nicodemus from this perspective, but I'd like to offer it. And in many ways, we are so parallel to him. Nicodemus was one of the most learned people in Jerusalem and Judea when it came to religion. But he didn't understand what God's spiritual lesson of love was all about. And I'm going to say this without being arrogant or prideful, but I think you might be amongst some of the most well-educated religious people this world has ever seen. And especially if you've grown up in our circles. Think of the hours you spent going through the catechism, Martin Luther's summary of what is taught in God's Word. The six chief parts, the memorization, the questions, the answers. Imagine if you got a buck for every hour you spent with that thing, you could probably retire right now. You are well educated when it comes to this religion. What about the Lutheran hymnal? Have you, like me, been raised in a way where you memorized hymns that even to your dying day there are certain verses that will pop into your head, each one carrying a, a melodic way of uh, teaching the truth of God's word? And if that wasn't enough, you were probably taught not only how to read, but how to study God's word and even probably spent a good deal of time memorizing it. And if all that weren't enough, 
The traditions and customs of our worship today have flowed out of thousands of years of the Christian church. So now maybe you can understand that I can say without pride or arrogance, you are amongst some of the most religiously well-trained people this world has ever seen. Now, a moment of honesty. Has that changed your lives? It's good to know the truth. It's good to know how to get to the truth. But unless we actually digest that truth, it will never change us. Much like Nicodemus, we can find that we can be very religious people, but maybe not as spiritual as the Lord would have us be. Meaning that sometimes our faith becomes a matter of convenience. That when all of a sudden life takes a turn, oh yeah, I need to pray to God. So we'll stop and utter a quick prayer. God, I'm in a tough spot here now. Would you please help me? Like that's going to solve it. Almost like we use prayers on Abra. Cadabra. Or we go about our merry way, not always, not every one of us, but a lot of times we'll fall into the flow and routine of life and we just live forgetting who made us alive and who taught us how to actually live our lives to truly enjoy the blessings that he gives us. If your spiritual journey has been anything like mine, you have your high moments but you have your low moments as well that we not only fail to appreciate each other, but we truly fail to appreciate what God has done for us. And I know, I know we're going to walk out of here going, I'm on my way to heaven. Praise be to God. But what about Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday? Has that had an impact on the way we live our lives? Remember that the functions of a rabbi, our rabbi, are to teach us the truth so that we can take it out to the general population, not of Jerusalem, but to the world. We might know the truth, but do we live the truth? And do we share the truth? Hopefully, you have found within yourself the blessing of God's strength that you can be honest enough with yourself when you come across those times and recognize that maybe you've been filled up with something less than God. And I pray this lesson from Nicodemus has afforded us the opportunity that not only as we face the turning points of this week, but the turning points of our lives, we can actually stop for a moment and go, you know what? This is a moment where I need to ask myself some hard questions. My prayer for is is you that the Holy Spirit, who has given you your lives back, will actually lead you to the answers that impact your lives and impact the lives of other people. That is the blessing of finding the courage when God leads us to be honest with ourselves. Courage. Without it, you cannot live a full life. Everything worthwhile in life can only be obtained after at least one moment of courage. If you aren't willing to take a risk, you will lose the chance. If you don't have the courage to face your challenges, You will never get past your challenges and remain only a shadow of the person you could have been. It takes courage to be yourself in a world that expects you to conform. It takes courage to stand out in a world that expects you to fit in. It takes courage to go after your dreams when most people seek security and comfort. It takes courage to get up when life knocks you down. It takes courage to keep going when your life is falling apart. It takes courage to move on after your soul has been crushed. It takes courage to have faith that everything will work out. 
even when there's no sign anywhere that things will work out. You must have faith. It takes courage to say I will keep going, but you have to dig deep and find that courage. You must keep going and things will get better. If you don't have the courage to stand up in the moment that comes, that moment will pass you by. If you power or run from challenges in your life, you will never live your life to its maximum potential. Everything worthwhile in life can only be attained after a moment of courage. It takes courage to live with integrity, even when that makes you look bad. It takes courage to be brutally honest in a world full of lies and deceit. It takes courage to stand up for what is right, especially when it means you will lose some friends or come at a financial cost. It takes courage to say no, and sometimes it takes courage to say yes. It takes courage to think for yourself in this age of propaganda. And when everyone wants to tell you what they think is best for you, you have a mind of your own. Be brave enough to use it. It takes courage to live a big life. Have you got the courage 